book of Matthew, chapter 3. <clears throat> My intention is to go through this morning, or begin to go through this morning, the references to the terms king, or kingdom, or reign in the Pauline epistles. And as I mentioned before, there's other terms that refer to his kingdom, as we saw in our scripture reading. I could have done a <clears throat> search on the word dominion. And his dominion is everlasting, referring to his messiahship. I could do a search on other terms. <clears throat> I could do a search on the word Lord. That too is referring to his kingship. But I confined it to those three words, <clears throat> king, kingdom, and reign. And that was enough in and of itself. I mean, the word kingdom is mentioned approximately 53 times in the book of Matthew. So if you were going to try to systematize something, you would have to look at how many passages. About 53 of them just in the book of Matthew. There's over 44 of them in the book of Luke. And so that's almost 100 references. And that's just with the word kingdom. But what I decided to do is to take those terms and look at it in our New Testament in groupings. So I looked at it from the books of the Gospel, the four books of the Gospel. I looked at it in reference to the book of Acts. What was the relationship of the apostles, that apostolic company, in relationship to the words king, reign, and kingdom? Then I grouped the Pauline epistles together and looked at that. Then I looked at the general epistles, and then finally, what sections left? The book of Revelation. <clears throat> and it was clear that as you look at that grouping, that the books of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, has drawn near. Now the question is, how has the kingdom of God drawn near? And the answer to that, it is drawn near because the chosen king is now on earth. And of course, John foretold that. He was the forerunner to that king. We also know from the books of the gospel, very early in the book of Matthew, that the king commanded us to pray, your kingdom come. So there is a sense that though the king is on earth, in the book of Matthew, in his incarnation, the kingdom has not yet what? Is not yet arrived. And he was telling those men and telling us that in our prayer life that we should be praying, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. That implies it's an earthly what? It's an earthly kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is where? 
in heaven, and that implies there is a heavenly kingdom. But the earthly kingdom has not yet come. We also know from the books of the gospel that there are such things as the mysteries of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. A mystery is something that was hidden, that is the knowledge of these things, were in heaven, but now the king of kings has now what? Revealed them. And he revealed them to us in parables. And of course you know the very first parable was the seed and the and the sower. And so we have those kingdom mysteries now revealed. Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> They're also reiterated with a couple of additionals in the book of Luke. So what we have in the books of the gospel, <clears throat> and we're not going to look at all 100 passages, I'm just kind of summing it up for you, is that the kingdom has drawn near <clears throat> in the king, and yet we're to be praying, Thy kingdom come. We also know that when Israel tried to make him king, this is revealed in the book of John, when they tried to make him king, he what? He refused it. So we know that in saying that, there is teaching that in the first advent, Jesus offered the king, the kingdom to Israel, but they refused it. They did refuse it because they refused the king. But there was also a sense in which the people of Israel wanted to make him the king, and he what? He denied it. And then he told Pilate, when Pilate asked him, are you a king? He made this statement. My kingdom is not of this what? World. Do we hear that? If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. But since my kingdom is not of this world, implication, I'm not going to resist you. Everybody hear that? So here's what you have during the whole ministry of our Lord. He's the king, he's drawn near, he's revealing the mysteries of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They tried to make him king. He refused to do that. And he told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this earth. Meaning it was where? It was heaven. Every section that I have mentioned, <clears throat> whether it be the books of the gospel, the book of Acts, the Pauline epistles, the general epistles, or the book of Revelation, none of these sections are silent 
when it comes to an understanding of the kingdom of God and the kingship of Jesus Christ. In fact, John tells us that unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. So what is the condition of seeing the kingdom of God? You have to be born from above. You have to experience a second birth. He reiterates that and he says, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, referring to Ezekiel, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. And that is what we preach and teach, don't we? You must be what? Born again. Not merely to receive the forgiveness of sins. Not merely to have a renewed spirit. All those are critical. Regeneration, conversion but to inherit or to come into possession the kingdom of God, that future kingdom of God, which will be not only in heaven, it will be when one day? On earth. It will be on earth. Everybody, do we all understand that? It's kind of a summary. And of course, you read the book of Revelation. You have the Lord coming back. And you have statements like this, the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And when He comes and lands on the Mount of Olives on earth, He has a vesture that says, King of kings and Lord of what? Lords. And the kingdoms of this earth will fight against that. But He will smite them with the sword of His mouth. And it is all His in the end. And folks, this is exactly what the Beatitudes state. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of who? the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the whole earth. And folks, when you possess everything, it helps you take your hands and your grips off the things here. This eschatology of understanding the kingdom of God is critical to our stability and to our walk as we go forward. Now what I want to do this morning, there are 12 categories of scriptures that I want to go through. I think we'll only get to five this morning. But what I want to do is give you the proposition 
right off the bat so that you know the conclusion of the matter or the summary of the matter. And then we'll look at the passages that give support to those things along with some exhortation within those passages. So here's the proposition. In relationship to the church and to the church age, the kingdom is presently heavenly. It is not on earth. Heaven, at the right hand of God, is where the man, Jesus Christ the Lord, presently reigns. It's not that He will reign. It's not that you're going to make Him Lord. God the Father has already coronated Him as King. The manifestation of that coronation occurred at the resurrection. The kingdom is presently heavenly. It is not on earth. Heaven at the right hand of God is where the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, presently reigns. There is a heavenly Jerusalem who Paul says is the mother of us all. I want to re-emphasize that the kingdom is not yet on earth. And the church is not the kingdom. If you hold to either one of those two things, you will fall into error. Or at worst, you will fall into heresy. The church is not the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is not presently yet on earth. However, This is very important. The nature of the future kingdom has come to every believer in Christ in measure. It's a very, very important word. The nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is not on earth. The kingdom is not the church, but the nature of the kingdom has come to how many believers? Every believer in measure. And I will seek to prove that later on. And every believer is to walk worthy of this calling into Christ's kingdom and glory. How do we walk worthy? When we walk in the Spirit. That is, in the mindset of the Spirit and in the fruit of the Spirit. So there's your proposition. It's a long proposition, but there's our understanding. And Lord willing, I'll repeat it when we close 
the morning message. I made the statement that the nature of the future kingdom has come to every believer in measure. Now I want us to take our Bibles and I want us to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. This isn't one of my broad categories. I just want to bring this to our attention right at the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1. We went through a series on the book of Ephesians probably a year or more ago. We finished that series. And in that series, we talked about the mystery of His will and what that mystery is, that is the summing up, verse 10 of chapter 1, the summing up of all things in Christ, whether they're things in the heaven or things on the earth. Now note this, look at the end of verse 10. In Him also we have obtained a what? Let's say it. Inheritance. Everybody see that word. What is an inheritance? An inheritance is something that has been willed to me, right? But I don't yet what? I don't yet possess it. But because it's an inheritance... It is guaranteed to me. And in our case, that inheritance was guaranteed upon the death of the one who made the will, Christ. And it is guaranteed to us because Christ is not dead. He is what? He's alive at the right hand of God. He is entered into as King of Kings and Lord of Lords And that inheritance is guaranteed because he died and he now lives again. It has been guaranteed by the shedding of his blood, the book of Hebrews tells us. Now note in verse 13, in whom you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who promised that Spirit? Christ did in that upper room. Did He give the Spirit? Yes, We have the coming of that Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We've been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Every believer now, we don't ask for it, we don't seek it, we don't repeat Pentecost, but every believer, upon being placed in Him on our justification, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Lord grants us that Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 says that He is a life-giving Spirit. 
He gives the Spirit. So being sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now look at verse 14. Who was given? Who's the who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given with a pledge, a down payment of our what? Of our inheritance. Everybody see that? What's our inheritance? Is it future? Yes, it is. All right? What have we been given in the church age? Every believer has. We've been given a down payment of that future inheritance. And it says, given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of the glory of His grace. So what have we been given? Folks, we got a down payment. And that's why I say that the Holy Spirit, the nature of the coming kingdom, has come to every believer in measure. Why do I say in measure? Because the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment. What's a down payment? Well, if you went to a car place and you said, you know what, Um, I want that car. And the salesman says, well, it's going to cost X amount of dollars. And you say, well, <clears throat> I need to go down to the bank. Or maybe you have it in your savings account. You've got, you got to go get the money, right? And the salesman says to you, what will you give me to assure that you're not going to back out of this deal? And you say to the salesman, well, what down payment would I need to give to guarantee that you won't sell this car out from underneath me? A down payment is a gift of the whole thing. Right? You do that with a house. So the Holy Spirit, we have received the nature of the kingdom in the person of the Holy Spirit, not in its fullness, but as a what? As a pledge or as a down payment. The fact that we can see in our lives the working of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the mindset of the Holy Spirit gives us an assurance that one day we will inherit the fullness of the whole thing. Everybody see what I'm saying? So this has been given to us in measure. We won't turn to it, but Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 talks about believers receiving the first fruits of the Spirit. That's just another way of saying that we have received a pledge or a down payment of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, the first fruits of the Spirit guarantee 
that we cry, Abba, Father, that we groan to the Lord, waiting for the redemption of our what? Of our bodies. So we have been granted the nature of that future kingdom. Every believer possesses that nature in Christ and it has been given to us in measure. And I do want you to turn to this passage. Turn to the book. We're going to go into the general epistles. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is one of those apostles who heard all those words of our Lord. And he begins this epistle by saying that, verse 3, that His divine power has granted to us, every believer, everything pertaining to life and godliness, All of that which pertains to life and godliness is through the true knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. By these, that is His own glory and excellence, verse 4, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent what? Promises. So that by those precious and magnificent promises, you may become partakers. Partakers of what? The divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So folks, every believer has the divine nature. But we have it in measure... But the fullness of that divine nature is still yet to come. So what does he say for us to do? Verse 5. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence, give all your effort to this. In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Everybody see those things that we're to be pursuing? Folks, every one of those things is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the, the development, is the maturing, is the outworking. Is love a fruit of the Spirit? Yes or no? Is kindness the fruit of the Spirit? Yes or no? Is faith a gift of God? Yes or no? Yes. You see what I'm saying? All right. Here, give all diligence. You have received the down payment of the Holy Spirit. So you give all diligence to the maturing of the fruit of the Spirit, to the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit, to the walking in the Spirit. Verse 10. Therefore, brethren be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. How do you do that? By giving all diligence to the outworking of these things, these things of the divine nature. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, verse 11, for in this way, the what? What does it say? 
The entrance. What's an entrance? It's a gate or a door by which you what? You go through. For in this way, the development, the maturing, the outworking, the walking in the nature of this kingdom, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly what? Supplied where? In you. Everybody see that? So again, this is why I'm saying that every believer possesses the divine nature. It is the nature of this future kingdom and it has come to every believer in measure. But we are to mature those things. We are to grow up in those things. We are to be walking in those things. Why? Why? Because we are one day coming into the possession of that what? Kingdom. Folks, you're actually going to walk through the gates, as it were. Where's the kingdom now? Heaven. Where's the heavenly Jerusalem? Trick question. Heaven. Doesn't Hebrews talk about all the saints that are there? The citizenry in its role? Don't you hear Paul say, our citizenship is in heaven, so set your affections on things above, where Christ sits, reigns, on the throne of God? This is our motivation. Our whole pilgrimage is nothing more than us preparing ourselves for that future kingdom. And folks, when we come into that future kingdom, when all is said and done, we will receive the fullness of that kingdom. So if you think there's liberty in walking in the Spirit now, if you think there is power in walking in the Spirit now, if you think there's such a thing as the promises of God transforming you now, if you think there is such a thing as the illumination of the knowledge of God that transforms us into the image of Christ now is powerful and glorious, that's just a down payment of what is yet future. So the gathering of ourselves together as a local New Testament assembly is for us to increase in the grace that's the Spirit of God to increase in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Can't you hear Paul when he says, I'm striving to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ.
us growing in the Spirit, us growing in the fruit of the Spirit is not a small thing. It is the thing in which God has graciously granted to us the third member of the Godhead. And when we walk in that Spirit, we have the mindset of that Spirit, when we seek to not walk like the world, but to walk in the Spirit of God, we are preparing ourselves for an abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom. And folks, you know spouses and friends and relatives who are now where? They're in that heavenly city. It's amazing. So having laid down our, my proposition, let's look at the first category. I want us to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> now if you did what I did, you will find that a good percentage of the numbers of king, reign, and kingdom is in the book of Corinthians. Why might that be? Because the Corinthians had a perverted idea about the kingdom. And you recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you're in 15, just stay there. You recall in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, you think you're reigning as kings. He said, I wish you were reigning as kings. Because then I would reign what? I would be reigning with you. But are the apostles reigning as kings on this present earth? We are the off-scouring. We, we are the residue in a pot that deserves to be cleaned out and thrown away. That's the way the world sees us. They've not yet entered into the rain because it's still future. But are they walking in the Spirit? Those apostles are walking in the Spirit. The Corinthians were not walking in the Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> you have this wonderful situation where Paul is talking about the resurrection of the body. And in 1 Corinthians 15 <clears throat> and in verse 24, he talks about Christ being the first fruits. In other words, he's in heaven with the promise of a great harvest. He's the first one. And it says in verse 24, let's start reading in verse 23, about the resurrection. But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are our Christ at what time? 
at His coming. At His coming, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, then comes the end. When's the end? At His coming. What's going to occur at the end of the end? When He hands over the kingdom of God and Father, what has to happen before He does that? When He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25. For He must what? For He must reign. How long is He going to reign before He turns over the kingdom to God the Father? Until He has put all His enemies under His what? His feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So what do we know by this? We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is presently reigning. The aim of His reign is twofold. One is not mentioned here. And that is to gather a people for His name's sake among all the peoples of the earth, both Jew and Gentiles. The other is to put all things under His feet. They have already been declared under His feet. Now He is presently putting all things or showing that He is over all. He is, as Ephesians says, far above all principalities and powers and dominion. He's the king. And that kingship, God the Father manifested at his pre, in His resurrection. Psalm 2 tells us that. So what we know is that Jesus is presently reigning from heaven. He's putting all rule, all authority, all power, all His enemies under His feet. And folks, this is exactly what Psalm 110 says. So let's turn there. Psalm 110. <clears throat> the Lord says to my Lord. This is David. He is foreseeing this time when the seed, His seed, Christ, the Messiah, will have God the Father say to Him, Sit at My right hand. Where's Christ now? At God's what? He's at His right hand. The New Testament is clear about that. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24 says. Look at verse 2. 
The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. A scepter is a symbol of rule or reign. He will stretch it forth. He will extend that rule and reign, the boundaries of that reign, from where? Zion. Where was Christ crucified? He was crucified outside the city of who? Jerusalem, which is Zion. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, which refers to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. They were to carry this message beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The Lord's going to stretch forth that strong scepter from Zion, and this is what the Lord God the Father says to Christ. Rule. So is He presently ruling? Yes. Rule in the midst of your who? Your enemies. And folks, all the nations have gathered themselves together against the Lord and against His Christ. Is God, is Christ presently ruling through the Holy Spirit in the communication of the nature of the future kingdom in believers? The answer to that is yes. Now note verse 3. Let's talk about the kingdom and let's talk about His people. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. So his reign, his rulership in the midst of his enemies, he's going to stretch forth his scepter and he's going to exert his power in people so that what happens? They will volunteer freely. Do we have any New Testament passage that talks about that? Therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you to present your bodies a living what? Holy, acceptable unto God. Our reasonable act of worship. Everybody see that? He's going to exert His power. Now folks, we know that the power of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is the preaching of the cross of Christ. And when that comes into the lives of a person, they, they are saved. They're given a new nature. And there is something inside of them. It's not perfect because we receive the Holy Spirit in measure. We're still in this corruptible body. But there's something in them that when they hear about the mercies of God in the work and person of Jesus Christ, there's something inside of them that wants to yield voluntarily to that rule and reign in their lives. And it's going to be done, Psalm 110 verse 3, in the garment of holiness.
from the womb of the dawn. Because the dawn has light, right? And what's a womb for? Birthing. Light's going to be birthed in them. Your youth are to you as the dew. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who's that? It's the same Lord who's king, right? He is the king priest. And the book of Hebrews gives us that understanding. Verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. That's a reference back to verse 1. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of what? Folks, that's still what? That's still future. Is He going to come? Will He shatter kings in the day of His wrath? Read the book of Revelation. And He will judge among the nations. Didn't our Lord say that? And He will fill them with corpses and He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. In other words, He will be continually refreshed so that He will not lose strength to accomplish the fullness of the day of His wrath. And that is still future. So what we know is, is that the Lord is presently reigning. And folks, let me just just say this to help us here. How does God exercise His reign? This is what He does. He allows evil and darkness to gain power. And when evil and darkness is at its height, He crushes it with a word from His mouth. Do we understand that? Listen to our Lord. When they came to take Him, He said to them, this is the power of darkness. Did Christ allow evil to do its utmost and put Him to death? Yes or no? Yes. Did He conquer it? Yes. That's how He does with evil. Not in His people. They volunteer freely in the day of His power. But with the kingdoms of this world. And folks, this is why the Bible says that evil is only going to grow worse and worse. Now thanks be to God, He gives reprieves sometimes, doesn't He? We call it revival working among God's people, working among lost people. But in general, things are going to get worse and worse until one day we have 
a false Christ and an antichrist sitting on the kingdoms of this earth. And you won't be able to buy or sell without His what? So the Lord Jesus is presently reigning. It's very important for us to understand that. Now let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter, <clears throat> chapter 1. We read this for our Scripture read. First <clears throat> Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. Paul gives a benediction. He says, Now, now to the King eternal. Is the King present or is it future? It's present. Now, to the King eternal. Immortal. He'll never die. Invisible. You can't see Him. The only God. Be honor. Glory. I'm going to add revelation. Blessing. Riches. Forever. And ever. How long is His dominion? Forever. And the church responds with, Amen. Because we have been called to this inheritance. Look at chapter 6, verse 15 of this book. 1 Timothy. It says that you are to keep this commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's invisible, but one day He will be seen. He will appear. Verse 15. Which He will bring about at the proper time. So is that present or future? That's future. He will appear in the future at the proper time. Who is the one that will appear at the proper time? He who is the blessed and only sovereign. The King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen and amen. I read that passage. You can't see it. I got goosebumps. This is wonderful. Magnificent. Glorious, anticipative. Here the Lord is king. He's presently king. He's presently reigning. And with His power, He's doing His name. He's saving people from their sins. He's gathering a people for His name who one day will inherit what? This future earthly kingdom. And we have been given a down payment because He has given to us the Spirit of that kingdom. The Spirit of the King. That is the Holy Spirit of God. Now I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because at this point we've got to cover something that is horrifying. 
What is horrifying is that there will be people who will not be inheriting this future kingdom of God. Isn't that horrifying? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul tells the Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So again, folks, is the kingdom of God future or present? It's still future. It's to be inherited. Right now, that earthly kingdom to be inherited is now in heaven. It's a heavenly kingdom. Jesus said that. My kingdom is not of this earth. But there are people that will not inherit this kingdom. And He says, do not be deceived. Which means the church might be what? Deceived. Fornicators idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. And he's talking about people whose lives are characterized by these things. And folks, regardless of what the world is trying to tell you and what a growing majority of the evangelical church is accepting, immoral people, adulterous people, who violate the marital contract and covenant, fornicators, homosexuals. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now those in Corinth, verse 11, used to practice those things. Such were some of you. Well, what power of God changed them? You were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Everybody see that? Folks, conversion doesn't leave you in those habitual states of existence. Several years ago, probably close to 10 years now, I was contacted by a young man who was a homosexual. We met at a McDonald's for several months up in the north of our city. And he was in bondage to this. And he kept saying, but I'm a believer. And I said to him, what? 
Folks, what would I say to him? You are not. He knew nothing of the freedom from bondage to sin. And I told him, I said, the only thing that can release you from the power of this sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will do it. And this is what He said to me. I can't believe that. I'm in bondage. I can't get loose of this. And I would repeat the Gospel to Him. Can Christ deliver? Does He have the power? But don't be deceived. Don't be like the Corinthians who were taking pride in this guy who's committing incest with his mother-in-law. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They need the gospel. And the end result of that young man was he walked away saying, I can't believe what you're saying and he would not meet with me anymore. Isn't that a tragedy? But folks, I've also had a situation. This is when I pastored in Ohio where a man who had AIDS, he was a homosexual. I went to his hospital room. Contact was given to me. And over three or four times, I gave him the gospel. And he accepted it. And it freed him. It didn't free him from AIDS. AIDS was going to kill him. But it freed him from that bondage. And he gave testimony to that. And he began telling this to people that would come into his room. And when he died, this is what he told me. He said, Pastor Jones, he said, the people that are going to come to my funeral, the overwhelming majority of them will be homosexuals and I want you to give my testimony to them on how Jesus Christ freed me. And I did. Such were some of you. And you know where that man, his name was John, you know where that man's at right now? <laughs> he, he's in that glorious city because of what the King of Kings did in his heart. He exerted his power in the midst of his enemies. He turned an enemy into a voluntary sacrifice for him. That takes the power of God. We'll look at two more passages and we'll close this morning due to time. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul repeats this to the Galatians. <clears throat> when he talks about the contrary and the contrast between those who have the Spirit and those who do not. In Galatians 5 verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmities, that's hatreds between people. Strife, that's contentions between people. Jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those whose lives are characterized by these things will not inherit what? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And folks, we can't get any more plainer than that, can we? Our last passage, turn to the book of Ephesians, next book over, chapter 5. Paul says to be imitators of God and walk in love. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Verse 3, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, that there be no filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting or suitable, what is suitable for a people who have the Spirit? Thankfulness. Verse 5. For you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the things we just read, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of who? Disobedience. That's pretty clear. And Paul's giving those things to us as a warning and exhortation for us to walk in the what? The Spirit. To pursue the maturing and the outworking and the behavior of this nature that has been given to us as a down payment. Why? Because there is a future kingdom that we desire to inherit. And because of what Christ has done inside of us. And folks, this is why this can be fearsome. This is why in the book of Luke, Christ turns to those men, those believing men, and I love this. I say this to me, myself, not frequently, but on occasion. I repeat these words. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen? This is His will for us. 
And He's giving you a pledge of the future inheritance as a believer. So when Christ says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, He is saying it in a connection of the inheriting of a future kingdom, the possession by justification of the righteousness of Christ, and by sanctification, the outworking of that righteousness in the church of Jesus Christ. This is His present reign. Let's go to our Lord in prayer.